Chapter Three of the Huguenots by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, the pastor. The count's orders were given so distinctly for no one to accompany him on his way that none of his domestics presumed even to gaze after him from the gate or to mark the path he took. As he wished to call no attention, he kept under the walls of the town, riding slowly along over the green till he came to the zigzag path which we have before mentioned as being now almost entirely disused. He had cast a large cloak around him, of that kind which at an after period degenerated into what was called a rock law, and his person was thus sufficiently concealed to prevent him from being recognised by anybody at a distance. At the foot of the zigzag which he now descended, he chose a path which led along the bank of the river for some way to the right, and then entered into a beautiful wooded lane between high banks. The sun was shining full over the world, but with a tempered and gentle light from the point of its declination at which it had arrived. The rays, however, did not in general reach the road, except where the bank sloped away, and then pouring through the green leaves and branches of the wild briar, the honeysuckle and the hazel, it streamed upon the miniature cliffs of yellow sand on the opposite side, and chequered the uneven path which the young count was pursuing. The birds had as yet lost little of their full song, and the deep round tones of the blackbird bidding the golden day adieu, as he saw the great light-bearer descending in the heaven, poured forth from beneath the holly-bushes with a melancholy and a moralizing sound, speaking to the heart of man with the grand philosophical voice of nature, and counselling peace and affection, and meditation on the bounties of God. It is impossible to ride through such scenes at such an hour on the evening of bright summer days without feeling the calm and elevating influence of all things, whether mute or tuneful, taught by almighty beneficence to celebrate either by aspect or by song the close of another day's being and enjoyment the effect upon the heart of the count de monceau was full and deep he had been riding slowly before but after passing through the lane for about a minute he gently drew in the bridle upon the horse till the beast went slower still then laid the rein quietly upon his neck and gave himself up to meditation the chief theme in his mind at that moment was certainly the state and prospects of himself and his fellow Protestants, and, perhaps, even in experiencing all the beauty and the peacefulness of the scene through which he wandered, the calm tone of enjoyment in everything around, the voice of tranquillity that spoke in every sound, his feelings towards those who unnecessarily disturbed the contented existence of an industrious and happy race, might become bitterer, and his indignation grow more deep and stern, though more melancholy and tranquil. What had the Huguenots done, he asked himself, for persecution to seek them out there, in the midst of their calm and pleasant dwellings, to fill them with fiery passions that they knew not of before, to drive them to acts which they as well as their enemies might bitterly repent at an after period, and to mar scenes which seemed destined for the purest and happiest enjoyment that the nature of man and its harmony with the other works of God can produce, by anxiety, care, strife, and perhaps with bloodshed? What had the Huguenots done, he asked himself, had they not served their king as loyally, as valiantly, as readily in the battlefield and upon the wide ocean, as the most zealous Catholic amongst them all? Had not the most splendid victories which his arms had obtained by land been won for him by Huguenot generals? Was not even then a Huguenot seaman carrying the thunders of his navy into the ports of Spain? Were the Huguenots less loyal subjects, less industrious mechanics, less estimable as citizens than any other of the natives of the land? Far from it. The contrary was known to be the fact, the decided contrary. They were more peaceable, they were more tranquil, they were more industrious, they were more ready to contribute either their blood or their treasure to the service of the state than the great mass of the Catholic population, and yet tormenting exactions, insults, cavillings, inquiries, and investigations, all tending to irritate and to enrage, were going on day by day, and were clearly to be followed soon by the persecuting sword itself. On such themes he paused and thought as he went on, and the first effect produced upon his mind was of course painful and gloomy. 
as the sweetest music sounding at the same time with inharmonious notes can but produce harsh dissonance so the brightest scenes to a mind filled with painful thoughts seems but to deepen their sadness still however after a time the objects around him and their bright tranquillity had their effect upon the heart of the count his feelings grew calmer and the magic power of association came to lay out a road whereby fancy might lead his thoughts to gentler themes the path that he was pursuing led him at length to the spot where the little adventure had occurred which he had related in the course of the morning to his friend he never passed by that spot without giving a thought to the fair girl he had there met but now he dwelt upon the recollection longer than he otherwise might have done in consequence of having spoken of her and of their meeting that very day he smiled as he thought of the whole for there was nothing like pain of any kind mingled with the remembrance it was merely a fanciful dream he had cherished half amused at himself for the little romance he had got up in his own mind half employing the romance itself as a check upon the very imagination that had framed it she was certainly very lovely he thought as he rode on and her voice was certainly very sweet and unless nature as is but too often the case had in her instance become accomplice to a falsehood that form that face that voice must have betokened a bright spirit and a noble heart alas why is it he went on to ask himself why is it that the countenance if we read it aright should not be the correct interpreter of the heart doubtless such was at first god's will and the serpent taught us though we could not conceal our hearts from the almighty to falsify the stamp he had fixed upon them for our fellow-men and yet it is strange however much we may have gained from experience however painfully we may learn that man's heart is written in his actions not in his face it is strange we ever judge more or less by the same deceitful countenance and guess by its expressions if not by its features though we might as well judge of what is at the bottom of a deep stream by the waves that agitate its surface in such fanciful dreams he went on often turning again to the fair vision that he had seen there sometimes wondering who she could have been and sometimes deciding and deciding the question wrongly in his own mind but never suffering the wild expectation which he had once nourished of meeting her again to cross his mind for he had found that to indulge it rendered him uneasy and unfit for more real pursuits at length the lane winding out upon some hills where the short dry turf betokened a rocky soil below took its way through a country of a less pleasing aspect here the count de morceau put his horse into a quicker pace and after descending into another low valley full of streams and long luxuriant grass he climbed slowly a high hill surmounted by a towering spire the village to which the spire belonged was very small and consisted entirely of the low houses of an agricultural population they were neat clean and cheerful however in aspect and there was an attention to niceness of exterior visible everywhere not very frequently found amongst the lower classes of any country there was scarcely any one in the street as the count passed except indeed a few children enjoying their evening sport and taking the day's last hour of happy life before the setting sun brought the temporary extinction of their bright activity there was also at the end of the town a good old dame sitting at a cottage door and spinning in the tempered sunshine of the evening while her grey cat rolled happily in the dust beside her but the whole of the rest of the villagers were still in the fields the count rode on giving the dame good even as he passed and leaving what seemed the last house of the village behind him he took his way along a road shadowed by tall walnut trees growing upon the edge of a hill which towered up in high and broken banks on the left and sloped away upon the right displaying the whole track of country through which the young nobleman had just passed bright in the evening light below with his own town and castle rising up a fellow hill to that on which he now stood at the distance of some seven or eight miles as he turned one sharp angle of the hill however he suddenly drew in his rein on seeing a carriage before him it was stationary however and the two boorish-looking servants dressed in grey who accompanied it were standing at the edge of the hill gazing over the country as if the scene were new to them while their horses which the coachman had left to their own discretion 
were stamping in a state of listless dozing, to keep off the flies which the season rendered troublesome. It was evident that the carriage was held in waiting for someone, and the Count, after pausing for a single instant, rode on, looking in as he passed it. There was no one, however, within the wide and clumsy vehicle, and the servants, so they stared at the young stranger, took no notice, and made no sign of reverence as he went by them, with which, indeed, he was well satisfied, not desiring to be recognised by any one who might noise his proceedings abroad. He rode on then with somewhat of a quicker pace to a spot where, at the side of the road, a little wicket-gate led into a small grove of old trees, through which a path conducted to a neat stone-built house of small size, with its garden around it, flowers on the one hand and pot-herbs on the other. Nothing could present an aspect cleaner, neater, more tasteful than the house and the garden. Not a straw was out of its place in the thatch, and every flower-bed of the little parterre was trimmed exactly with the same scrupulous care. The door was of wood, painted grey, with a rope and handle by the side, to which was attached a large bell, but, though at almost all times that door stood open, it was closed on the present occasion. The young Count took his way through the grove and the garden straight to the door, as if familiar with the path of old, leaving his horse, however, under the trees, not far from the outer gate. On finding the door closed, he pulled the handle of the bell, though somewhat gently. But for a moment or two no one replied, and he rang again, on which second summons a maid-servant of some forty or fifty years appeared, bearing on her head a towering structure of white linen, in the shape of a cap, not unlike in shape and snowy whiteness the uncovered peak of some mountain ridge in the Alps. On her appearance she uttered an exclamation of pleasure at the sight of the young Count, whom she instantly recognised, and, on his asking for her master, she replied that he was busy in conference with two ladies, but that she was sure that the Count de Morsay might go in at any time. She pointed onward with her hand as she spoke, down the clean, nicely sanded passage to the door of a small room at the back of the house, looking over the prospect which we have mentioned. It was evidently the good woman's intention that the Count should go in and denounce himself, but he did not choose to do so, and sent her forward to ask if he might be admitted. A full, clear, round voice instantly answered from within, on her application, "'Certainly, certainly!' And taking that as his warrant, the Count advanced into the room at once. He found it tenanted by three people, only one of whom, however, we shall pause, as the other two, consisting of a lady dressed in a sort of half-mourning, with a thick veil which she had drawn over her face before the Count entered, and another who was apparently a female servant of a superior class, instantly quitted the room, merely saying to their companion, "'I will not forget.' The third was a man of sixty-two or sixty-three years of age, dressed in black, without sword or any ornament, to his plain straight-cut clothes. His head was bare, though a small black velvet cap lay on the table beside him, and his white hair, which was suffered to grow very long at the back, and on the temples, fell down his neck and met the plain white collar of his shirt, which was turned back upon the shoulders. The top of his head was bald, rising up from a fine, wide forehead, with all those characteristic marks of expansion and elevation which we are generally inclined to associate in our own minds with the idea of powerful intellect and noble feelings. The countenance, too, was fine, the features straight, clear, and well-defined, though the eyes, which had been originally fine and large, were somewhat hollowed by age, and the cheeks, sunken also, left the bones beneath the eyes rather too prominent. The chin was rounded and fine, and the teeth white and undecayed, but in other respects the marks of age were very visible. There were lines and furrows about the brow, and on the cheeks, and between the eyebrows there was a deep dent, which might give in some degree an air of sternness, but seemed still more the effect of intense thought, and perhaps of anxious care. The form of the old man bore evident traces of the powerful and vigorous mould in which it had been originally cast. The shoulders were broad, the chest deep, the arms long and sinewy, the hands large and muscular. The complexion had been originally brown, and perhaps at one time florid, but now it was pale, without a trace of colour anywhere but in the lips, which for a man of that age were remarkably full and red. The eye, 
The light of the soul was still bright and sparkling. It gave no evidence of decay, varying frequently in expression from keen and eager rapidity of thought, and from the rapid changes of feeling in a heart still full of strong emotions. Such, though the picture is but a faint one, such was the appearance of Claude de Lestang, Huguenot minister of the small village of Oron, at equal distances from Raffigny and Morsay. He had played in his youth a conspicuous part in defence of the Huguenot cause. He had been a soldier as well as a preacher, and the sword and musket had been familiar to his hands, so long as the religion of his fathers was assailed by open persecution. No sooner, however, did those times seem to have passed away than, casting from him the weapons of carnal warfare, he resumed the exercise of the profession to which he had been originally destined, and became, for the time, one of the most popular preachers in the south of France. Though his life was irreproachable, his manners pure, and his talents high, Claude de Lestang had not been without his portion of the faults and failings of humanity. He had been ambitious in his particular manner, he had been vain, he had loved the admiration and applause of the multitude, he had coveted the fame of eloquence, and the reputation of superior sanctity. Youth and youth's eagerness, joined with the energy inseparable from high genius, had carried his natural errors to an extreme, but long before the period of which we now speak, years, and still more, sorrows, had worked a great and beneficial but painful alteration. His first disappointment was the disappointment of the brightest hopes of youth, complicated with all that could aggravate the crossing of early love. For there was joined unto it the blasting of all bright confidence in woman's sincerity, and the destruction of that trust in the eternal happiness of one whom he could never cease to love, which was more painful to the mind of a sincere and enthusiastic follower of his own particular creed than the loss of all his other hopes together. He had loved early and loved above his station, and encouraged by hope and by the smiles of one who fancied that she loved in return, his ambition had been stimulated by passion, till all the great energies of his mind were called forth to raise himself to the highest celebrity. When he had attained all, however, when he saw multitudes flock to hear his voice, and thousands hanging upon the words of his lips as upon oracles, even then, at the moment when he thought everything must yield to him, he had seen an unexpected degree of coldness come upon her he loved, an apparent reluctance to fulfil the promises which had been given when his estate was lowlier. Some slight opposition on the part of noble and wealthy parents, opposition that would have yielded to entreaties less than urgent, was assigned as the cause of the hesitation which wrung his heart. The very duties which he himself had inculcated, and which, had there been real love at heart, would have found a very different interpretation, were now urged in opposition to his wishes. And, mortified and pained, Claude de Lestang watched anxiously for the ultimate result. We need not pause upon all the steps. The end was that he saw her, to whom he had devoted every affection of a warm and energetic heart, break her engagements to him, wed an enemy of her father's creed, renounce the religion in which she had been brought up, and after some years of ephemeral glitter in a corrupt court, become faithless to the husband for whom she had become faithless to her religion, and end her days in bitterness in a convent where her faith was suspected and her real sins daily reproved. In the meanwhile, Claude de Lestang had wrestled with his own nature. He had refrained from showing mortification or grief or despair. He had kept the serpent within his own bosom and fed him upon his own heart. He had abandoned not his pulpit, he had neglected in no degree his flock, he had publicly held up as a warning to others the dereliction of her whom he most loved, as one who had gone out from amongst them because she was not of them. He had become sterner, indeed more severe, in his doctrines as well as in his manners, and this first sorrow had a tendency rather to harden than to soften his heart. The next thing, however, which he had to undergo was the punishment of that harshness. A youth of a gentle but eager disposition, who had been his own loved companion and friend, whom he still esteemed highly for a thousand good and engaging qualities, was betrayed into an error, on the circumstances of which we will not pause. Suffice it to say that it proceeded from strong passion and circumstances of temptation, and that for it he was eager and willing to make atonement. 
He was one of the congregation of Claude de Lestang, however, and the minister showed himself the more determined, on account of the friendship that existed between them, not to suffer the fault to pass without the humiliation of public penitence, and he exacted all to the utmost tittle that a harsh church in its extremist laws could demand, ere it received a sinner back into its bosom again. The young man submitted, feeling deep repentance, and believing his own powers of endurance to be greater than they were. But the effect was awful. From the church door, when he had performed the act demanded of him, fancying that the finger of scorn would be pointed at him for ever, he fled to his own home, with reason cast headlong from her throne. Ere two hours were over, he had died by his own hand, scrawling with his blood as it flowed from him, a brief epistle to his former friend, to tell him that the act was his. That awful day and those few lines not only filled the bosom of the minister with remorse and grief, but it opened his eyes to everything that had been dark in his own bosom. It showed him that he had made a vanity of dealing with his friend more severely than he would have done with others, that it was for his own reputation's sake that he had thus acted, that there was pride in the severe austerity of his life, that there was something like hypocrisy in the calm exterior with which he had covered over a broken heart. He felt that he had mighty enemies to combat in himself, and, as his heart was originally pure and upright, his energies great, and his power over himself immense, he determined that he would at once commence the war, and never end it till, to use his own words, he had subdued every stronghold of the evil spirit in his breast, and expelled the enemy of his eternal master for ever. He succeeded in his undertaking. His very first act was to resign to others the cure of the congregation in Rochelle, the next to apply for and obtain the cure of the little Protestant congregation in the remote village of Oran. Every argument was brought forward to induce him to stay in La Rochelle, but every argument proved inefficacious. The vanity of popularity he fancied might be a snare to him, and he refused all entreaties. When he came amongst the good villagers, he altered the whole tone and character of his preaching. It became simple, calm, unadorned, suited in every respect to the capacity of the lowest person that heard him. All the fire of his eloquence was confined to urging upon his hearers their duties, in the tone of one whose whole soul and expectations were staked upon their salvation. He became mild and gentle too, though firm when it was needful and the reputation which he had formerly coveted still followed him when he sought to cast it off. No synod of the Protestant clergy took place without the opinion of Claude de Lestang, being cited almost without appeal, and whenever advice or consolation or support was wanting, men would travel for miles to seek it at the humble dwelling of the village pastor. His celebrity, joined with his mildness, gained him great immunities for himself and his flock, during the early part of the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, At first, indeed, when he took upon himself the charge of Oran, the Catholic authorities of the neighbouring towns, holding in remembrance his former character, imagined that he had come there to make proselytes, and prepared to wage the strife with vehemence against him. The intendant of the province was urged to visit the little village of Oran, to cause the spire of the church, which had been suffered to remain, as all the inhabitants of the neighbouring district were Protestant, to be pulled down and the building reduced to the shape and dimensions to which the temples of the Protestants were generally restricted. But ere the pastor had been many months there, his conduct was so different from what had been expected, he kept himself so completely aloof from everything like cabal or intrigue, he showed so little disposition to encroach upon the rights or to assail the religion of others, that, knowing his talents and his energies, when roused into action, the neighbouring Catholics embraced the opinion that it would be better to leave him undisturbed. The intendant of the province was a wise and a moderate man, and although, when urged, he could not neglect to visit the little town of Oran, yet he did so after as much delay as possible, and with the determination of dealing as mildly with its pastor and its population as was possible. When he came, he found the minister so mild, so humble, so unlike what he had been represented, that his good intentions were strengthened. He was obliged to say that he must have the spire of the church taken down, 
although it was shown that there was not one Catholic family to be offended by the sight within seven or eight miles around. But Claude de Lestang only smiled at the proposal, saying that he could preach quite well if it were away, and the intendant, though he declared that it was absolutely necessary to be done, by some accident always forgot to give orders to that effect, and even at a later period discovered that the spire, both from its own height and from the height of the hill on which it stood, sometimes acted as a landmark to ships at sea. Thus the spire remained, and here, in calm tranquillity, Claude de Lestang had, at the time we speak of, passed more than thirty years of his life. A small private fortune of his own enabled him to exercise any benevolent feelings to which his situation might give rise. Simple in habits, he required little for himself. Active and energetic in mind, he never wanted time to attend to the spiritual and temporal wants of his flock with the most minute attention. Though ever grave and sad himself, he was ever well pleased to see the peasantry happy and amused, and he felt practically every day, in comparing Oron with Rochelle, how much better is love than popularity. No magistrate, no judge, had any occupation in the town of Oron, for the veneration in which he was held was a law to the place. Any disputes that occurred amongst the inhabitants in consequence of the inseparable selfishnesses of our nature were instantly referred to him, and he was sure to decide in such a way as instantly to satisfy the great bulk of the villagers that he was right. There were no recusants, for though there might be individuals who, from folly or obstinacy or the blindness of selfishness, would have opposed his decision if it had stood unsupported, yet when the great mass of their fellow villagers were against them also, they dared not utter a word. If there was any evil committed, if youth and either youth's passions or its follies proceeded wrong, the pastor had learned ever to censure mildly, to endeavour to amend rather than to punish, and to repair the evil that had been done, rather than to castigate him to whom it was attributable. In such occupations passed the greater part of his time, and he felt to the very heart the truth of the words, even in this world, that blessed are the peacemakers. The rest of his time he devoted either to study or to relaxation. What he called study was the deep, intense application of his mind to the knowledge and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, whether in translation or in the original languages. What he called relaxation divided itself into two parts, the reading of that high classical literature which had formed the great enjoyment of his youth, and by attention to which his eloquence had been chiefly formed, and the cultivation of his flower-garden, of which he was extremely fond, together with the superintendence of the little farm which surrounded his mansion. His life, in short, was a life of primeval simplicity, his pleasures few, but sweet and innocent, his course of existence for many years at least smooth and unvaried, remote from strife, and dedicated to do good. From time to time, indeed, persons of a higher rank, and of thoughts and manners much more refined than those of the villagers by whom he was surrounded, would visit his retirement to seek his advice or enjoy his conversation, and on these occasions he certainly did feel a refreshment of mind from the living communion with persons of equal intellect, which could not be gained even from his converse with the mighty dead. Still it never made him wish to return to situations in which such opportunities were more frequent, if not constant. It is enough as it is, he said. It now comes like a refreshing shower upon the soil of the heart, teaching it to bring forth flowers. But perhaps if that rain were more plentiful and continued always, there would be nothing but flowers and no fruit. I love my solitude, though perhaps I love it not unbroken. It rarely happened that these visits had anything that was at all painful or annoying in them, for the means of communication between one part of the country and another were in that day scanty, and those who came to see him could in no degree be moved by curiosity, but must either be instigated by some motive of much importance, or brought thither by the desire of a mind capable of comprehending and appreciating his. He seldom, we may almost say never, went out to visit anyone but the members of his own flock in his spiritual capacity. He had twice, indeed, in thirty years, been at the Chateau of Monceuil, but that was first on the occasion of a dangerous illness of the Countess, the mother of Count Albert, 
and then, on the commencement of those encroachments upon the rights of the Huguenots, which had now been some time in progress. The Counts of Marseille, however, both father and son, visited him often. The first he had regarded well nigh as a brother, the latter he looked upon almost in the light of a son. He loved their conversation from its sincerity, its candour, and its vigour. The experience of the old Count, which came united with none of the hardness of heart and feeling which experience too often brings, the freshness of mind, the fanciful enthusiasms of the younger nobleman, alike interested, pleased, and attached him. With both there were points of immediate communication, by which his mind entered instantly into the thoughts and feelings of theirs, and he felt throughout every fresh conversation with them that he was dealing with persons worthy of communication with him, both by brightness and elevation of intellect, by earnest energy of character, by virtue, honour, and uprightness, and by the rare gem of unchangeable truth. It may well be supposed, then, that he rose to meet the young Count de Mosseau, of whose return to his own domains he had not been made aware, with a smile of unmixed satisfaction. "'Welcome, my dear Albert,' he said, addressing him by the name which he had used towards him from childhood. "'Welcome back to your own dwelling and your own people. How have you fared in the wars?' How have you fared in perilous camps and in the field and in the still more perilous court? And how long is it since you returned to Mosseille? I have fared well, dear friend, replied the Count, in all, have had some opportunity of serving the King, and have received more thanks than those services deserved. In regard to the court, where I could neither serve him nor myself nor anyone else, I have escaped its perils this year by obtaining permission to come straight from the army to Mosseille, without visiting either Paris or Versailles. And now, as to your last question, when I arrived, I would say but yesterday afternoon, were it not that you would, I know, thank me for coming to see you so speedily, when in truth I only intended to come to-morrow, had not some circumstances, not so pleasant as I could wish, though not as bad as I fear may follow, brought me hither, to consult with you to-day." A slight cloud came over the old man's countenance as his younger companion spoke. "'Is the difficulty in which you seek counsel, Albert,' he demanded, "'in your own household or in the household of our suffering church?' "'Alas,' replied the Count, "'it is in the latter, my excellent friend. "'Had it been in my own household, unless some urgent cause impelled me, "'I should not have thus troubled you.' "'I feared so, I feared so,' replied the old man. "'I have heard something of these matters of late.' so they will not leave us in repose. And as he spoke, he rose from the chair he had resumed after welcoming the Count, and paced the room backwards and forwards more than once. It is in vain, he said at length, casting himself back into his seat, to let such things agitate me. The disposal of all is in a better and firmer hand than mine. On this rock will I found my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So said our divine master, and I need not tell you, Albert of Morseille, that when he said, On this rock, he meant on the rock of faith, and did not mean the trumpery juggle, the buffoon-like playing on the name of Peter, which the disciples of a corrupt sect would attribute to him. He has founded his church upon the rock of faith, and therefore do I build my hope, for I cannot but see that the enemy are preparing the spear and making ready the bow against us. Whether it be for God's will that we shall resist, as we have done in former times, and be enabled, through but a handful amongst a multitude, to smite the enemies and the perverters of our pure religion, or whether we shall be called upon to die as martyrs, and seal our faith by the pouring out of our blood, leaving another example to the elect that comes after us, will be pointed out by the circumstances in which we are placed. But I see clearly that the sword is out to smite us, and we must either resist or endure. "'It is precisely on that point,' replied the Count, "'that I came to consult with you. Measures of a strong, a harassing, and of an unjust nature are taking place against us, because we will not say we believe that which we are sure is false, and follow doctrines which our soul repudiates. Did I hope, my excellent friend, that the matter would stop here? Did I expect that such measures of petty annoyance as I have heard proclaimed in the town of Mosseille to-day or anything indeed similar to those measures, would be the final end and limit of the attack upon our liberties and our faith, I should be most anxious to calm the minds of the people, 
to persuade them to endure rather than to resist, and to remember that patience will cure many things. I should ask you, I should beseech even you, plighted as you are to support the cause of truth and righteousness, to aid me in my efforts, and to remember at what an awful price indemnity must be bought, to remember how fearful, how terrible must be the scenes through which we wade to the attainment of those equal rights which should be granted even without our seeking them. "'And I would aid you, and I would remember,' exclaimed the pastor, grasping his hands. "'So help me the God of my trust, Albert of Marseille,' he continued more vehemently, "'as I have ever avoided for long years every cause of strife and dissension, "'every matter of offence thrown in my way by those who would persecute us. "'Nay, more, far more, when my counsels have been sought, when my advice has been required,' The words that I have spoken have always been pacific, not alone peaceful in sound, but peaceful in spirit and intent, and peaceful in every tendency. I have counselled submission where I might have stirred up war. I have advised mild means and supplications, when the time for successful resistance was pointed out, both by just cause for bitter indignation, and by embarrassment for our enemies in consequence of their over-ambition. And now I tell thee, Albert, I tell thee with pain and apprehension that I doubt, that I much doubt, whether in doing so I have acted right or wrong, whether by such timid counsels the happy moment has not been suffered to slip, whether our enemies, more wise in their generation than we are, have not taken advantage of our forbearance, have not waited till they themselves were in every way prepared, and are now ready to execute the iniquitous designs which have only been suspended in consequence of ambitious efforts in other quarters. "'I fear, indeed, that it is so,' replied the young Count. "'But nevertheless, neither you nor any other person has cause to reproach himself for such conduct. Forbearance, even if taken advantage of by insidious enemies, must always be satisfactory to one's own heart.' "'I know not, I know not,' replied the old man. "'In my early days, Albert, these hands have grasped the sword in defence of my religion, and we were then taught that resistance to the will of those bigots and tyrants who would crush out the last spark of the pure worship of God and substitute in its place the gross idolatry which disfigured this land was a duty to the author of our faith. We were taught that resistance was not optional, but compulsory, and that to our children and to our brethren and to our ancestors we owed the same determined, persevering, uncompromising efforts that were required from us by the service of the Lord likewise. We were taught that we should never surrender, that we should never hesitate, that we should never compromise, till the liberty of the true Reformed Church of France was established upon a sure and permanent basis, or the last drop of blood in the veins of her saints was poured out into the cup of martyrdom. Such were the doctrines, Albert, that we were taught in my youth, such were the doctrines under which I myself became a humble soldier of the cross. But, alas, lulled with the rest of my brethren into a fatal security, thinking that no farther infraction of our liberties would take place, believing that we should always be permitted to worship the God of our salvation, according to the dictates of our own conscience, perhaps even believing, Albert, that some degree of contumely and persecution, some stigma attached to the poor name of Huguenot, might be beneficial, if not necessary, in our frail condition as mortal men, to be a bond of union amongst us to maintain our religion in its purity, and to keep alive the flame of zeal. Believing all this, I have not bestirred myself to resist small encroachments. I have even counselled others to pass them over without notice. Now, however, I am convinced that it is the intention, perhaps not of the king, for men say that he is kind and clement, but of the base men that surround him, gradually to sap the foundations of our church, and cast it down altogether. I have seen it in every act that has been taking place of late, have marked it in every proceeding of the court, and though slow and insidious, covered with base pretexts and pitiful quibbles, the progress of our enemies has been sure, and I fear that it may be too late to close the door against them. I could recall all their acts one by one, and the summing up would clearly show that the idolatrous priesthood of this popish land are determined not to suffer a purer faith to remain any longer as an offence and reproach unto them. I much wish, replied the Count earnestly, that you would put down in order these encroachments. 
I have been long absent, serving in the field where my faith has, of course, been no obstacle, and where we have little discussion of such matters. But if I had them clearly stated before me, I and the other Protestant noblemen of France might draw up a petition to the king, whose natural sense of right is very strong, which would induce him to do us justice. The old man shook his head, with a look of melancholy doubt, but the Count immediately added, repeating the words he had just used, to do us justice, or to make such a declaration of his intentions as to enable us to take measures to meet the exigency of the moment. "'Willingly, most willingly,' said Claude de Lestang, "'will I tell you all that is done, and has been doing, by our enemies. I will tell you also, Albert, all the false and absurd charges that they urge against us to justify their own iniquitous dealings towards us.' We will consider the whole together, calmly and dispassionately, and take counsel as to what may best be done. God forbid that I should see the blood of my fellow Christians shed, but God forbid also that I should see his holy church overthrown. You speak of charges against us, sir, said the Count, with some surprise in his countenance. I knew not that even malice itself could not find or forge a charge against the Huguenots of France. At the court and in the camp there is no charge. Tell me what we have done in the provinces to give even a foundation for a charge. Nothing, my young friend, replied the clergyman. We have done nothing but defend the immunities secured unto us by the hand of the very king who now seeks to snatch them from us. We have not even defended, as perhaps we should, the unalienable privileges given us by a greater king. No. The insidious plan of our deceitful enemies has been to attack us first, and then to lay resistance to our charge as a crime. But take but a few instances. In the towns of Tonnay and of Priva, the reformed religion was not only the dominant religion, but the sole religion, and had been so for nearly a century. The inhabitants were all Protestants, tranquil, quiet, industrious. There were no religious contentions, there were no jealous feuds. When someone, prompted by the fiend, whispered to the crown that means should be taken to establish in those places the authority of the idolatrous church, that opportunity should be given for making converts from the pure to the corrupted faith, that in the end the pillage of the Protestant congregations should be permitted to the Romish priesthood. An order was instantly given for opening a Romish church in a place where there were no papists, and for preaching against our creed in the midst of its sincere followers. The church was accordingly opened, the singing of Latin masses and the exhibition of idolatrous processions commenced where such things had not been known in the memory of man. A few boys hooted, and instantly there was a raised cry that the Romish priests were interrupted in their functions, that the ceremonies of the church were opposed by the whole mass of Huguenots. What was the result? The Parliament of Paris gave authenticity to the calumny by granting letters of protection to the intruding clergy, and then, taking its own act as proof of the guilt of the Huguenots, commanded our temples to be pulled down, and the free exercise of our religion in that place to be abolished. This was the case at Tonnay, and if, at the same time, the decree which announced its fate to that city had boldly forbidden our worship throughout the land— we might have displayed some union and made some successful resistance. But our enemies were too wise to give us such a general motive. They struck an isolated blow here and an isolated blow there. They knew man's selfishness. They foresaw how apathetic we should be to the injuries of our fellows, and they were right. The Huguenots of France made no effort in favour of those who suffered. Some never inquired into the question at all, and believed that the people of Tonnay had brought the evil on their own heads. Some shrugged the indifferent shoulder, and thought it not worth while to trouble the peace of the whole community for the sake of a single small town. Had it been your town of Mosay, it would have been the same, for such has been the case with Priva, with Dexodon, with Mel, with Chevreur, with Vitre, and full fifty more and not one Protestant has moved to support the rights of his brother. Whenever, indeed, anything has occurred affecting the whole body, then men have flocked to us, demanding advice and assistance. They have talked of open resistance, of immediate war, of defending their rights, of opposing further aggressions, but I have seen, Albert, that, mingled with a few determined and noble spirits, 
there have been many selfish, many indifferent, and I know that, unless some strong and universal bond of union be given them, some great common motive be afforded, thousands will fall off in the hour of need, and leave their defenders in the hands of the enemy. For this reason, as well as for many others, I have always urged peace where peace can be obtained, but I see now such rapid progress made against us that I tremble between two terrible results. The young Count gazed thoughtfully in the pastor's face for a few moments ere he replied. I fear, he said at length, that we have not yet a sufficient motive to bind all men, as it is most needful in the strong assertion of a common cause. Heaven forbid that we should do or even think of aught disloyal or rebellious, but I doubt much, though the new injury we have received is gross, that it will furnish a sufficient motive to unite all our brethren in one general representation to the king of our general grievances. Yet there are many points in the edict I heard read to-day, wounding to the vanity of the influential men amongst us, and that motive will often move them when others fail. But listen, and tell me what you think. These were the chief heads of the proclamation. And he went on to recapitulate all that he had heard the old man listening with attention while he spoke. "'I fear there is no bond of union here,' replied the pastor, commenting upon some of the heads which the young Count had given him. "'Rather, my good friend, matter for dissension. They have cunningly thrown in more than one apple of discord to divide the mayors of the Protestant towns from their people, aye, and even to make the pastors odious to the flock.' "'Let us, however,' said the Count, "'endeavour to act as unitedly as possible.' Let us keep a wary eye upon the proceedings of our enemies. Let us be prepared to seize the fit moment for opposition, that we may seize it before it be necessary to resist in a manner that may be imputed to us as disloyal. Doubtless, at the assembling of the states of the province, which will take place shortly, there will be a great number of the Protestant nobles present, and I will endeavour to bring them to a general conference, in the course of which we may perhaps... Hark! said the old man, there is the noise of a horse's feet, and the next instant a loud ringing of the bell was heard, followed by the sound of a voice in the passage speaking to the maid-servant in jocular and facetious tones, with which the young Count was well acquainted. "'It is my rascally valet, Riquet,' he said. "'He's always strutting himself where he has no business.' "'I wonder you retain him in your service,' said the pastor. "'I have marked him in your father's time, and have heard you both say that he is a knave.' "'And yet he loves me,' said the young Count, "'and I do in truth believe would sooner injure himself than me.' "'The old man shook his head with an expression of doubt, "'but the Count went on. "'However, I did not wish him to know that I came here to-night, "'and still less should wish him to be acquainted with the nature of my errand. "'He is a papist, you know, and may suspect, perhaps, "'that we are holding a secret council with others. "'We had better, therefore, give him admittance at once.' There was a small silver bell stood on the table beside the pastor, and, as the maid did not come in, he rang it, inquired who it was that had arrived when she did not make her appearance, and then ordered the valet to be admitted. "'What brought you here, Maître Jérôme?' demanded the young Count, somewhat sternly, as the valet entered on his tiptoes with a look of supreme self-satisfaction. "'Why, my lord,' replied the man, "'scarcely had you set out when there arrived a courier from the Duc de Rouvray, "'bringing you a packet. "'He was asked to leave it as you were absent, "'but he said it was of vast importance, "'and that he was to get your answer from your own mouth, "'so he would give it to nobody. "'I took him into what used to be called the pages' room, "'and made him drink deep of Chateau Thierry, "'picked his pocket of the packet while he was looking out of the window.' and seeing that he was tired to death, commended him to his bed, with a nightcap of good liquor, promising to wake him as soon as you returned, and then set off with a packet to seek you, Monsieur le Comte. "'And pray what was the object of all this trickery?' demanded the Count. "'If you be not careful, Maître Jérôme, you will place your neck in a cord some day.' "'So my mother used to say,' replied the man, with cool effrontery. "'But I only wished to serve your lordship, and knowing that there were difficult matters in hand,' "'thought you might like to read the packet first "'in order to be prepared to give a ready answer. "'We could easily seal up the letter again "'and slip it into the courier's jerkin, "'which the poor fool put under his head when he went to sleep, "'thinking to secure the packet that was already gone. "'He would then present it to you in due form, "'and you give your answer without any apparent forethought.' 
The Count could not refrain from turning a smiling look upon the pastor, who, however, bent down his eyes and shook his head with a disapproving sigh. The Count at the same time tore open the packet which the servant had handed to him, with a ruthless roughness that made good Jerome Riquet start and cry, "'Oh!' with an expression of pain upon his countenance, to see not the slightest possibility left of ever patching up the letter again, so as to make it appear as if it had never been opened. "'And I suppose, Master Jerome,' continued the Count, while making his way into the packet, "'that you took the trouble of watching me when I set out this afternoon.' "'Heaven forbid, sir,' replied the man. "'That would have been both very impertinent "'and an unnecessary waste of time and attention, "'as I knew quite well where you were going. "'As soon as you had been out to hear the proclamation "'and keep the people quiet, "'and came home and sat with the shuttlecock Marquis de Ericourt, "'and then ordered your horse, I said to myself, "'and I told Henriot, "'His lordship is gone to consult with Monsieur Claude de Lessang.' and where indeed could he go so well as to one who is respected by the catholics almost as much as by the huguenots whom could he apply to so wisely as to one whose counsels are always judicious always peaceful and always benevolent and having finished this piece of oratory riquet perceiving that his master busy in the letter gave him no attention made a low but somewhat grotesque reverence to the good pastor bending his head rounding his back and elevating his shoulders while his long, thin legs stuck out below, so that he assumed very much the appearance of a sleeping crane. The pastor, however, shook his head, replying gravely, "'My good friend, I have lived more than sixty-five years in the world, and yet I trust age has not diminished the intellect which experience may have tended to improve.' By the time he had said this, the young Count had read to the end of the short letter which he had received, and put it before the pastor. "'This is kind,' he said, "'and courteous of my good friend the Duke, "'who, though I have not seen him for many years, "'still retains his regard for our family. "'Jérôme, you may retire,' he added, "'and wait for me without. "'This letter which you have brought "'is of no importance whatever, "'a mere letter of civility, "'so that either you or the Duke's courier have lied.' "'Oh, it was the courier, sir,' replied the valet, "'with his usual quiet impudence. "'It was the courier, of course, "'otherwise there is no truth in the old proverb.' "'Cheat like a valet, lie like a courier. "'I always keep my own department, sir,' "'and so saying, he marched out of the room. "'In the meantime, Claude de Lestang had read the letter, "'which invited the young Count to visit the Duc de Rouvray at Poitiers, "'and take up his abode in the Governor's house "'some days before the meeting of the States. "'It went on to express great regard for the young nobleman himself "'and high veneration for his father's memory.' and then, glancing at the religious differences existing in the province, and the measures which had been lately taken against the Huguenots, it went on to state that the writer was anxious to receive the private advice and opinion of the young Count as to the best means of extinguishing all irritation on such subjects. Were this from any other man than the Duke de Rouvray, said the pastor, I should say that it was specious and intended to mislead. But the Duke has always shown himself favourable to the Protestants as a politician." and I have some reason to believe is not unfavourable to their doctrines in his heart. But go, my son, go as speedily as possible, and God grant that your efforts may conclude with peace. After a few more words of the same tenor, the pastor and his young friend separated, and the Count and his valet, mounting their horses, took their way back towards the chateau, with the shades of night beginning to gather quickly about them. End of chapter 3